Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientist Newsflash, where we take a weekly look at what's hot in the world of science. This week's episode features Chris Smith, Helen Scales and Sarah Castor-Perry, and I'm Ben Valsler. Coming up, we'll find out what's going on inside the brains of dyslexia sufferers. People who have normal reading ability, that don't have dyslexia, when they were doing this task, they saw a very large amount of activity in a part of the brain called the superior temporal gyrus. This was not seen in the people who had dyslexia. And discover the protein that allows plants to tell the time. It could well be that CHC does seem to be this missing link between those two parts of the plant's DNA to be able to sense when light's going up and when light's going down again. Plus, the airborne toxic cloud of copper that's killing off plankton, a sieve that can be used as a ship, and Sarah Castor-Perry takes us back to 1853 and the death of Christian Doppler, who played a vital part in understanding the expanding universe. That's all on the way. This week, scientists have published in the journal Current Biology some very exciting work done on dyslexia. This is a common condition and it affects between 4 and 10% of adults in the Western world. And it's where people who have dyslexia have a problem reading and they say that they struggle to read lines of text. They have no problem with language. It's actually when they come to read language that they get into difficulties. And for a long time, people have not really understood why this problem occurs and whether in some people it really exists or whether some people are using it as an excuse even. Some people have claimed that it's just an excuse for poor performance in some instances. But it certainly is a real entity and the people who have it will certainly say they have certain difficulty. But what's actually going on inside the brain to make this occur? Well, this has been the subject of study of Vera Blau and her colleagues. She's a researcher at Maastricht University. And to find out, she recruited 26 people. Half of them, 13, were dyslexic and half of them were normal. And they put these people in the brain scanner and they gave them some simple tasks to do. And what they started off doing was just showing people pictures of letters. And while they were showing them the pictures of letters, they were scanning their brains to see which bits of the brain were lighting up when they were being presented with the pictures. Then what they did was to play people the sounds of those letters. So, in other words, the simplest sounds of language, they just played those sounds to people to see which bits of the brain were responding to those sounds. Then they made it more complicated. They started to pair the sounds and the pictures together. So, in other words... They did it congruously to start with. You would show someone a letter A and then you would also play the sound A or B and B. And then they switched the task around and did it incongruously. So you would show someone a picture of the letter A, but then you would play them the sound B, for example. So the sounds and the letters didn't match. And a really striking difference emerged. People who have normal reading ability, they don't have dyslexia, when they were doing this task, whenever the sound and the letter matched up, they saw a very large amount of activity in a part of the brain called the superior temporal gyrus. This was not seen in the people who had dyslexia. And it was really astonishing, that's what Vera Blau said of the results. But why they say this is important is not only does it give us insights into where in the brain this is occurring, it also begins to give us insights into why dyslexia occurs. What they think is going on is that there's an integration in this part of the brain of the visual presentation 
of a piece of language and the sound. And what the brain does is to marry the two together and when we read something, the brain decodes the appearance of the letters and then you effectively speak it internally to yourself, hear yourself saying the words, and that's how you decode written language. And there's some kind of problem with this integration function in people who have dyslexia. And why this is an important discovery is that now we have some kind of objective readout of where in the brain it's happening. It might be possible to test various therapies designed to improve people who have dyslexia's ability to read and decode language because you can test those therapies against these kinds of brain scans and see if they begin to make a difference. Sounds like good news indeed for those people who are suffering from dyslexia. Well, I've got some rather bad news from the world of the oceans again, and that is that toxic chemicals in airborne dust that settle out onto the surface of the oceans could be disrupting marine ecosystems by poisoning the phytoplankton at the base of the food chains, which are re- play a really vital role in regulating the global climate and, of course, are also really important for those marine ecosystems all, all the way around the globe. And in particular, it's dust blowing off the Sahara Desert that's laced with copper, which seems to be killing off or has the ability to kill off um, some of the single-celled plants and algae, the phytoplankton, the tiny creatures that harness the sun's energy and absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Well, this was Adina Payton from the University of California at Santa Cruz in the US uh, who led a team of researchers and they took air samples from different currents blowing across into the Red Sea and they knew where those currents of air had come from. And... um, Sometimes it actually is um, beneficial to have dust blowing into the oceans from the land because it can deliver vital nutrients, nitrogen and phosphorus, that are actually usually in short supply in the oceans. So that can actually fertilise the oceans, a bit like putting similar fertilisers on crops on land. But what they found was that some of the dust samples that they were mixing up in the laboratory with samples of seawater with phytoplankton in them, was without rather than stimulating growth, they were actually causing a sharp decline in various species of phytoplankton. Suggesting there's something toxic in there. Exactly. So they had to think about what that might be and they, and they analysed these dust uh, samples coming from different parts um, of the world and found that in particular in the Saharan desert um, uh, samples of dust, it was copper that was very abundant and we already suspected that might be the culprit because other studies have shown just how toxic copper can be to marine phytoplankton. But they, they tested it again and they put copper at different concentrations into seawater and found there was a sort of dose-dependent response. The more copper you put in, the more of a problem you get with particular species of phytoplankton. And they think the copper's coming from uh, from the desert dust. About 65% of it actually comes from naturally from the desert. So that's not really something that sort of mankind maybe is responsible for. But people do seem to be emitting around 30% um, from the combustion of various things in industrial processes. So we definitely are contributing to more copper in this dust that floats around in the atmosphere. They, these guys also put together a, a model of the globe to show where there might be other areas that are problematic where we might be seeing this toxic effect of copper happening. And they see, they've pinpointed places like the Southeast Asia and the Bay of Bengal, um, and these really could be areas where copper toxicity in, in the marine ecosystems could be a problem. One of, the, one of the really worrying things is that it's not affecting all the phytoplankton. I guess it would be worrying if they were wiping all of them out. But it may well be that only certain species are particularly susceptible to copper. So what we might see is a shift in the type of phytoplankton living in the oceans, and that could, have, could trigger 
important knock-on effects through the rest of the ecosystem. So it's something that uh, we might need to think about, you know, what we're putting into the atmosphere and how that's affecting things living in the oceans. It's amazing the effect the Sahara Desert can have on the world's weather and ocean temperatures. There was a paper published about a year ago where scientists showed an association between the amount of Saharan dust in the atmosphere and whether or not you had a bad hurricane that year because the dust was blocking out sunlight, which warms the ocean, and when you get warm Atlantic waters, you're more likely to have hurricanes. So it's really interesting how this one body of material, obviously it's a huge body of material, but it can have big knock-on effects worldwide. It is amazing. I've flown, I've, I've flown over the Sahara Desert and it just goes on and on and on. It's an astonishing thing to see. Thank you, Helen. Well, let's look uh, also at uh, the water, but also the, the question of whether you can make a sieve float, because Edward Lear famously sent the jumblies to sea in a sieve and everyone said they would drown. But if they were in a sieve that had been treated by two Chinese researchers, Qin Min Pan and Min Wang, who are researchers at the Herbin Institute of Technology in China, maybe they wouldn't have uh, drowned after all, because what these pair of researchers have managed to do is to turn sieves into waterproof boats. It's an astonishing piece of physics, but what they do is to take a meshwork, which is it's a bit like chicken wire, but on a miniature scale, and you dip this in some cleansant, so you clean the surface so the metal is nice and polished and shiny. Then they treat it with silver, so you dip it into a silver solution and you get silver depositing on the surface, and then they treat it with a material called dodecanoic acid, which is sort of fatty acid. And when you put this sieve-like material in water, it just floats, and it will even hold a huge cargo. You can put lots of sand in little pots inside it, and it won't sink until, of course, you overwhelm the sides with water, and then it, then it will sink. So it's working just like a boat. Um, to find out why this works, they zoomed in with a very powerful microscope on the surface of the material and you can see tiny dendrites branches of silver on the surface on all the bits of metal from the from the meshwork and the uh, silver dendrites give it a very big surface area to which this dodecanoic acid which is fatty sticks so you then get this super hydrophobic which means super water hating surface which coats the meshwork and this traps a layer of air against the mesh because it hates water so much and this means that the boat then repels water and it floats. But we have boats that work quite well already, don't we? Why do we need to have sieves made into boats? <laughs> well, they do point out that, yes, um, at the moment this is a bit ahead of its time. There's no immediate obvious application for this. But they say that you could see this being used in things like small underwater robots, in microfluidic devices, but also if you could scale it up to the big scale because it traps a layer of air against the the hull, if you like, then what you could do is use it to cut down drag enormously because boats, when they're going through the water, obviously pull water onto the surface and that creates resistance to the movement of the boat and the boat has to burn more fuel to get through the water. If it was to ride on a cushion of air trapped by this substance, then this would save energy. Excellent. Well, scientists have also this week discovered the missing link in the biological clocks of plants. You might think it's just animals and people who are able to detect light and with their eyes and, and respond to changes in the nighttime and daytime and, and respond to their behaviours um, accordingly. But plants can do it as well. And uh, the mystery has been about just how plants are able to do this. Because in the past, scientists have studied the plant equivalent of a laboratory mouse called Arabidopsis. And they've tracked down a, two primary feedback loops in the DNA. Um, one that detects the onset of light in the morning and a second that senses when light's fading in the evening. But what was missing was something to link those two together. But now Steve Kay and a team of researchers from the University of California in San Diego think they've found that missing link, and it's a protein called CHE. Now, the presence of CHE has been predicted for nearly a decade, but it's only just now been found. And what the researchers did was they hunted around for proteins that bind to DNA and that switch genes on or off. And in particular, they were looking for proteins that 
that change in abundance over time because that really hints that they're actually involved somehow in their biological clocks. They're changing during the course of a day. Now, they found several cyclical proteins that do change in abundance, but it was only CHE that stuck to the region of the plant DNA that we already know is in charge of the ability to sense morning light levels. They took a closer look and they also found that this same protein binds to the other part of the DNA that has this sensitivity to when it gets darker in the evening. So it could well be that CHE does seem to be this missing link between um, those two parts of the plant's DNA to be able to look at, uh, to be able to sense when light's going up and when light's going down again. Many people don't realise that plants have this body clock and, mm. and I actually spoke to one of the researchers that you mentioned there, Helen, uh, about two or three months ago and he told me that with a rising world population and climate change we could be seeing plants having to accommodate living in different parts of the planet that they're not accustomed to because different parts of the planet get different length days therefore plants grow better at certain latitudes than others and the understanding these clock genes will enable us to get much more growth out of plants and therefore make them much more efficient exactly you do it, it's it's very important for plants to do things like time their flowering to be at the right time um so that it's not too cold and that, so there's lots of insects around and things like that so it's really there are lots of aspects of plant growth that are really tuned in to the time of the year as well as the time of the day thank you helen well also in the news this week. A new kind of material has surfaced. Ba-boom. This is the work of Professor Marek Urban, who's a researcher at the University of Southern Mississippi, and this material has the capacity to repair itself whenever it gets scratched. Sounds ideal for my car when I take a trip to the supermarket. Hello, Marek. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. Well, thank you for having me. Tell us how this material works. Well, essentially, as you create a scratch on a, on a plastic you, it's, and exposed to the sunlight, Certain reactive molecules open up, and consequently they react with another species that are pr- present in the system, and uh, form what we call crosslinks. And those crosslinks essentially seal the the scratch that was mechanically created. So it's a, like a little silent uh, species sitting inside of a of a system that is capable of self-repairing upon exposure to ultraviolet light. So tell us what the actual chemicals are that you've used in the mixture and how different are they from what we're currently using in paints and other surfaces? Well, most of the the automotive, for example, paints, and not only automotive but also floor uh, coatings, utilise polyurethanes, which are fairly durable and fairly high-performance materials. However, they are not exempt from uh, mechanical damage. And uh, so what we created is essentially we took polyurethane network and also incorporated small amounts of uh, chitosan. And chitosan is a derivative of chitin, which is the second largest carbohydrate present on Earth after cellulose, which was modified with uh, the so-called oxetane. And that oxetane ring is one of those reactive sites that opens up as you make a mechanical scratch. So chitosan is actually a derivative of chitin, as you say. That's the exoskeleton, the outer shell of things like crabs and lobsters, isn't it? Exactly. I mean, and you have plenty of those things in the landfills along the coast of every country that deals with fishery and that sort of thing. As a matter of fact, some portion of this research was funded by the the Mississippi Division of Marine Resources. So that chitin was, or chitosan, I should say, was modified with oxetane, and that oxetane is a relatively easy to open ring. As as mechanical scratch is being for, is created, that oxetane opens up, creating a reactive species, and that, upon exposure to UV light, creates another reactive species from chitosan, and those things react again to form a crossing network. So therefore 
uh, eliminating scratches. So, to put it simply, you have the chitosan, which is this molecule, and you've coupled onto the side of it a ring structure, which, when the plastic or the paint surface gets scratched or damaged, that ring busts open. This makes it chemically reactive, and it can then grab either side of the damaged area and link it back together. Right, exactly. So it's a, and, and the quantities of this material are relatively small. Therefore, although, again, this is the proof of concept at this stage, uh, but uh, we don't seem to know to, to see reasons why that shouldn't work in many other systems. And just to finish off, Marek, when can we see this actually being used? Is there any reason why we can't expect to see this cropping up on car paints and car surfaces very, very soon? Well, I think, I think we should. And it's like, of, of course, there are different types of polyurethanes being utilised in a variety of, of, of systems. Some of them are water-based, some of them are solvent-based. So it's slightly system-dependent, but those things can be worked out. And I really hope that uh, consumer-driven markets like automotive markets and other, for that matter, will pick up on that and they'll uh, take this seriously. We'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much, Professor Marek Urban from the University of Southern Mississippi. He's got that uh, published in the journal Science this week. You can read that if you want to find out a bit more about how it works. But basically, a very clever chemical structure based on a molecule you find in nature, in the shell of a lobster or a crab, for example, and it's activated by ultraviolet light. So if you get a scratch on your car, you go for a drive in the sun, and he tells me you need just 30 minutes in the sunshine, on a decent day, I presume, in order to make good any damage. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientist.com. And now, Sarah Castor-Perry looks back at the life of Christian Doppler, who passed away this week in 1853. This week in science history saw, in 1853, the death of Christian Doppler, the Austrian physicist. Although he published over 50 articles in his life, his most notable work, published in 1842 when he was 39, was his discovery of what came to be known after his death as the Doppler effect. He suggested that the frequency of a light wave was dependent on the relative movement of the source of the light and the observer. This is the same effect that makes the sound of a police siren go up in pitch as it comes towards you, then decrease as it moves away. Basically, what happens is that the sound waves get squashed as they come towards you, fitting them into a smaller space, making the frequency, or the pitch, go up. Then they stretch out again after they pass you, making the frequency and pitch go down again. The application of the Doppler effect to sound waves was proven by the Dutch scientist Bice in 1845, and the first observation of the shift to occur in light was described by the Frenchman Fizeau in 1848. We now know that in the case of light, it's a bit more complicated than Doppler's explanation – as light is not in fact made up of waves like sound, it's made up of particles called photons that show wave-like properties. However, for the sake of argument, the wave explanation used for the Doppler effect in sound is a useful analogy for how it works in light as well. In 1929, the theory was used by Edwin Hubble to formulate Hubble's law that you can tell how far away a star is by how redshifted the light coming from it is. Redshift is what happens to light when the source, the star in this case, is moving away from the observer, us, like when the police siren goes past and away from you and the pitch gets lower. Red light has a longer wavelength than blue light, so when something is moving away, the wavelength stretches out and the light is moved closer to the red end of the spectrum. 
All known stars fall into set categories of star types, and these types have a particular signature, the combination of gases and other compounds in them that give off a particular pattern of wavelengths of light. By comparing stars of the same type, we can see that the signatures of stars further away have been shifted towards the red end of the spectrum. This is still some of the most important evidence for the expanding universe and Big Bang theories. Because all stars appear to be moving away from each other, the only explanation is that the whole universe must be expanding. A bit like drawing dots on a balloon and then blowing it up. All of the dots are going to get further and further apart. So although we now know that the mechanism behind the redshift of light is not as Doppler first suggested, this is only after over 50 years of research and technological advance since Doppler's time. His theory for the behaviour of waves relative to the observer has played an integral part in forming some of the most important astronomical theories of the past 100 years. Sarah Castor-Perry explaining how Doppler's theories allowed scientists after him to develop the idea of redshift further explored by the Hubble Space Telescope. Well, that's all we have for this Naked Scientist Newsflash, which this week featured Chris Smith, Helen Scales and Sarah Castor-Perry, along with our guest, Professor Marek Urban. The Naked Scientist Newsflash is produced by me, Ben Valsler. If you've enjoyed the Newsflash, then why not check out the Naked Scientist podcast, where every week we bring you the latest in science news, along with interviews, answers to your questions, and a kitchen science experiment to try out at home. Join us on the web at thenakedscientists.com, and we'll be back with another roundup next week. The Naked Scientist Newsflash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.